stay away from me. Baby, keep your distance, please. Stay away from me. Words of love in times like these. I'm gonna be with you 24 hours a day. A lot of people couldn't stand that, but you can. You'll be with me 24 hours a day. What a lucky man I am. Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Now, you may not have heard the opening song before. It's called Stay Away by Randy Newman. You know, that guy that wrote, I love L.A., and You Got a Friend? He wrote it about living with his wife during the pandemic, and I thought it was a nice addition and a little less frenetic than Pitbull's pandemic song to be used as opening music for today's podcast. So today's podcast is about how autism diagnosis is going during the pandemic. And let's just acknowledge that families have been struggling during the pandemic in many ways. That includes getting services, medical care, resources, jobs, just getting schooled at home, and of course meeting their IEPs, which is, a, which is a particular struggle. Also, getting a diagnosis, both through an initial evaluation and sometimes a required re-evaluation has been a struggle. Well, how are these evaluations handled? If you can't see a child or an infant in person, how do professionals utilize standardized assessments that will give clinicians an idea of a person's strengths and weaknesses? And tell them what they need help with. Well, for very young children, Amy Weatherby and her group at Florida State University started something years ago, decades ago, actually, called the Autism Navigator, soon followed by the Baby Navigator, which are more pertinent than ever right now. If you go to autismnavigator.com, you will find a list of resources for parents of young children and service providers and educators of infants, toddlers, and school-age kids. Parents, are you concerned about your child's development? Go to a webinar hosted on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month to see examples of behaviors of young children and how parents and caregivers can help manage those behaviors and improve social communication through a number of daily naturalistic situations. There's also a webinar suited for different service providers, to teach you how to use a standard tool called the SORF, which is the Systematic Observation of Red Flags, which has been validated as an early markers tool. The webinar is really a tutorial complete with videos about how to use the tool. Once you get some experience with it, then you can use it to help parents get some direction on their child's strengths and weaknesses, and even more importantly, direct them to the Autism Navigator itself to see a huge library of videos in real-life situations where parents are using these skills to provide opportunities for support to promote development. This can all be done in five hours a week or because it's home all the time. We'll be doing another podcast with Dr. Amy Weatherby in the future and some of the exciting things they've done to expand the Navigator during the pandemic in response to the needs of families. But what about situations where insurance companies or school districts absolutely have to have a formal evaluation? Or what about that first evaluation where signs and symptoms are somewhat ambiguous, maybe because the features are not exactly clear, and it's hard to determine what help the child needs? 
What if it's an adolescence whose challenges have changed in the past year and a new evaluation is probably necessary? What if the comorbidities need to be documented or questions the type of the diagnosis itself? These kids and adolescents need a comprehensive interview, which includes a clinical interview with caregivers and a standardized observation or an interaction with the person by an experienced clinician. In addition to behavioral tests, a test for cognitive and language abilities is also essential to get them the right services. Now, of course, the global pandemic has made massive changes on how these evaluations can be conducted. At first, during the lockdown, there was nothing. Since then, there's been a mix of telehealth, in-person, teleconferencing, and some in-person assessments in a socially distanced manner. We do not know for sure if some of the modifications to telehealth work in the same way the in-person ones do. That's why ASF is funding two studies to look at at least some of the modifications and to determine how well they're liked and accepted by both families and clinicians. But in the meantime, in the early, early days, a group of 100 clinicians, probably more as time went on, got together to share ideas, concerns, challenges, solutions, and basically how to provide care to families in this age of lockdown and social distancing. Of course, they did this over Zoom. When I say they got together, they got together over Zoom. They called themselves IDEA, the International Collaborative for Diagnostic Evaluation of Autism. It started at the University of Missouri, but it also involved places like University of Minnesota, the Marcus Institute in Atlanta, Center for Autism and Developing Brain in New York, and the Children's Hospital of Orange County. The discussions on these calls included people from all over the world. But what I'm laying out in this podcast are the practices that were documented from these sites in a recent publication. Now, some of these may or may not have been adopted by others. And of course, as you'll hear, some of these adaptations, like the ability to do rapid COVID testing, was not always available in certain areas of the world. The paper is intended to summarize some of the discussions and provide examples of how different centers have adjusted their standard approaches. It's not a comprehensive review, but if some clinicians and care providers are listening right now and can find this information helpful, I want to share it. And I also want to share with parents that these are the sorts of things that are going on all over the world. Clinicians are working hard to get your children the services that they need under what could be considered, I guess, challenging circumstances. Now, the first thing on the list was telehealth diagnoses, specifically those who needed them most urgently and what assessments could be done over telehealth versus what absolutely had to be done in person. They created a triage diagram for this. Remember, at the early stages, nobody really knew how long the pandemic was going to last. And and some people thought, well, maybe some of these evaluations could wait or someone absolutely had to be seen in person or via telehealth immediately. The first thing was convincing families that telehealth was an option and whether or not they had the technology to begin with. I think many of us take internet access and having a computer for granted. Then they had to be prepared for their evaluation. And usually an in-person evaluation, parents hand their child over to the clinician and don't need to actually participate. They can watch, they sometimes are in the room, but they don't really do the, the bits and pieces of providing some of the prompts. This time, of course, they did. 
parents had to provide support, like creating a room to do this evaluation, providing toys and determining with the clinician on how to set up the room. This actually is harder than it might seem. The families had to be prepared to play with toys, bubbles, have snack time, play with people with balloons or a ball game, and set up a situation for pretend play. There had to be games and instructions and parents and how to elicit behaviors to help with an autism diagnosis. And these included unstructured and structured activities. Now remember, different families are capable at different levels of doing sorts of things like this. After these evaluations over a computer, they used different rating scales, and sometimes those were driven by the insurance company who insisted the use of these certain instruments to allow for continued service coverage. There's a list of these measures in the paper, but they include the Brief Observation of Symptoms for Autism, or BOSA, the Systematic Observation of Red Flags, SORF, the one I mentioned earlier, and the Childhood Autism Rating Scale. Now, cognitive tests were more difficult. It's really important to measure the IQ of someone to better understand their strengths and weaknesses. And it's not possible for telehealth under seven years of age. So some sites were getting COVID relief funds to do the rapid testing for COVID of kids and families so they could actually come in in person. Others receive money to develop their own testing kits to make some of the telehealth testing more standard. For example, using the same toys in each family, the same stimuli. So clinicians were not confused by whether or not some of the toys used would or wouldn't elicit some of the key behaviors they were looking for. Now, at first, everything was done over telehealth, and that was due to strict stay-at-home orders. But as the months progressed and testing has gotten easier to obtain, some centers have moved to more of a hybrid model. Luckily, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued a range of waivers expanding care during COVID, including a provision for telemedicine so that these telehealth services could be paid for. Sometimes clinicians spend much more time on telehealth assessments to get the same information than from people in person, and that needs to be better looked at. Now, one bright light has been that telehealth has allowed for in-home evaluations of children to see what things are going on in the homes. This wasn't possible before. Clinicians are also learning to provide a wide range of options for families other than to just send them to in-person clinics. Now, as I mentioned earlier, a key has been to understand how families are feeling about these assessments and adjusting them accordingly. These can be surveys done after the assessments or the telehealth interview or during. Nobody wants to fill out one more online assessment, and that's been a challenge, So getting feedback from families on how this would working and could be improved in a way that is convenient and acceptable to them is essential, and we're working on that. So now to another part of COVID that I normally don't like to talk about, but there is a bright light to recently report, and I'll talk about that at the end. That is, what are the effects of COVID on kids whose mothers get sick during pregnancy? Well, it's still too early to tell about COVID specifically, but a recent meta-analysis of studies done in the last 10 years about whether infection raises the probability of autism in the offspring has been compiled. As you can probably guess from what I've said before, maternal infection does increase the probability of autism in offspring. 
A decade of research was not all that inconsistent, and the meta-analysis shows a moderate but significant association of prenatal maternal infection, which is defined of infection of any type, and then probability of autism in those offspring. There were some risk of biases across these studies. You know, some reported a large effect but had somewhat of a vague methodology, or if a study was considered to only show positive findings, it may not have shown negative findings. But adjusting for these biases did not, in the end, change the fact that there was a significant relationship between maternal infection during pregnancy and autism in the offspring. Now, one strong predictor of the effect across the different type of infections was maternal fever. And that didn't matter whether it was a bacterial infection or a viral infection or another type of infection or where the infection was. Genitourinary infections like UTIs or upper respiratory infections or other. There wasn't much of a difference in the type of autism with or without ID or type of infection. Some of the studies with the larger effects were viral infections, but the statistics didn't support a difference between bacterial and viral infections. There was also some increased probability if the infection was in the second or third trimester, but really fever was the most important variable as well as other type of infection, one that was not a genital urinary infection or a respiratory infection, which means everything else. Not very helpful, I know. One thing I want to be clear here is that there was no way to measure infection severity. Maybe there was, but it wasn't done consistently. That means how long the infection lasted or how long the fever was in the meta-analysis. And obviously, the study was done before COVID, so these are non-COVID infections. The effect of fever suggests that that might be the common pathway rather than the type of the infection or the source of the infection. The authors actually go on to state that the incidence of autism could be reduced 12 to 17 percent if maternal infections could either be prevented or treated in a timely manner. While fever was the most prominent effect, other studies have shown that the trigger is actually the release of something called interleukin-17, and that's the most important factor in determining the probability of autism in the offspring. Now, also of interest is a new study in animal models. So we're switching gears here. But this new animal model study showed that it may not just be IL-17. It's the development of the overall immune response, specifically called the integrated immune response. This means the downstream effects of the translation of genes that are triggered by an infection that lasts longer the infection itself. It moves from the fetus and the placenta to the brain of the fetus and disrupts protein synthesis. I'm happy to send you the PDF if you want more information, but for most listeners, that's enough, and I don't want to get into the weeds. It's the downstream effect on notifying RNA to produce proteins that's disrupted. Interestingly, the effects in mice were seen in male but not females, I also want to point out, though, that in the human studies, there was no sex bias on the whole of maternal infection on diagnosis of offspring. So, of course, there's always other things that are of importance that are going on in humans, but that's why it's important to study these things in mice and rats and humans. Thank you so much for listening this week. The bright light I wanted to mention here is that there is a recent report that maternal vaccination for COVID induces the production of antibodies in fetuses. 
So not only does it stop the infection in mothers, it also protects the offspring. Now, for how long? We don't know yet. But it's a bright light at nearing the end of a long tunnel when it comes to fear of being infected with COVID, and also that fear that COVID could be a factor that increases the probability of a diagnosis in your child. Thank you for listening and talk to you next week. Stay away from me. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. How you like that? Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. I saw you.